Good morning, welcome. Let me um, add my note of welcome to you this morning. My name is Jeremy. I'm also one of the pastors here. I am delighted to be opening God's Word with you this morning. Um, I have to say, when I, as, a, as a starting point, I didn't start preparing this message uh, with, co- with coronavirus in mind. Um, but actually, just we worship a good father. We worship a father who knows what we need. And as I've reflected on it and chewed over these words, I think there's so much in this passage uh, that speaks to the current moment that we find ourselves in. There will be a, a comfort and a tonic to something of the anxiety that many are experiencing. So will you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1, uh, page 1001 in your church Bibles, if you've got one. Uh, we're going to read from two passages. Uh, before we do that, let me just give you a bit of a background. Uh, so today we're looking at the book of Hebrews, and we're looking at really the, uh, a letter that's unique in, uh, new, new t- in the New Testament. We don't know who the author is, but we know who the audience is. That this, uh, The writer is writing to a group of Jewish Christians who are probably in a, in a city, probably in Italy, uh, perhaps Rome. You've got, to, you've got to imagine a kind of house church, like a, a, mi- a small minority in a large urban environment. And really the key to understanding this book is that they are feeling something of the pressure, something, some heat. Uh, of course, for them, the big heat is the kind of fire of persecution. We're a few decades after Christ's ministry, written in the, uh, the 60s, um, and there's still a relatively minor sect in Roman culture. These guys are outsiders. They're in an urban environment where, where most of the people are probably not Jewish, so they're ethnic outsiders, but they're also um, religious outsiders in the sense that the, the, they do, many of their fellow Jews would not share their faith in Christ. So they're under intense persecution. As you look through the book, you'll see they've uh, lost friends, they've lost possessions, some of, something of the, the status that they have in the community uh, for following Christ. In Hebrews 10, it says, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Later on, it talks about how they experienced the plundering of their property. Of course, we know when we look at history, uh, this is about the time that Christians started to experience intense persecution, but under the authorities, being um, even in, in, the 19, in, the, in the 60s, Nero uh, blamed them for a fire that broke out in the city of Rome. And so this is kind of par for the course for the early Christians. And into this context, the writer of Hebrews has really got one resounding message that goes through the book, and we are going to look at today. And really that message is, don't shrink back. Don't give up. Continue with Christ. I want to read to you from chapter 2, which describes something of a warning. But also the writer of Hebrews gives us something of a a reason why. Why not to walk away from Christ? And for that we have to look at chapter 1. So I'm going to read to you the first four verses of chapter 1 and the first four verses of chapter 2. Let me read. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Chapter 2 then. Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Let's pray. Lord, help us to hear the wonderful truths contained within these words. Help us to put on Christ. Help us to speak this truth to our hearts. Help us to see your majesty and your glory. Lord, we thank you, Christ, that you are the heir of all things, that you reign at the right hand of the Father, that this is great comfort to our souls. Help us to hear the warning. Help us to respond by holding on to you by drawing near to you, by recognising that you are the solid rock on which we build our lives. Amen. 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 I think it's important that we hear this, both this vision of Christ and this warning for a few reasons. First of all, we need to endure as a minority in our culture. We will share much in common with these Hebrew Christians. As Christians in a secular city like London, we also feel like outsiders. People around you are making radically different decisions from you, what they value, the choices around their relationships, sexuality, identity, approach to wealth and possessions, no doubt their approach to this coming epidemic. There's also just the reality that we experience something, maybe a very light version of the kind of persecution that they might experience. Maybe it's not necessarily persecution, but at least we feel something of the outsider status that these Hebrew Christians would have felt. A sense that what we, what we believe isn't normal, that maybe a sign of sense of unspoken judgment, that Christians are intolerant and outside the norm. So like these Hebrew Christians, we need to understand how do we endure as a faithful minority? I think if Christianity is to flourish in the 21st century, it's essential that Christians learn something of the endurance and resilience that the writer of Hebrews is calling us to, not to give up in the face of opposition or any other trials. And I think this passage really holds the key to that. The second reason we need to look at that is because we live in a world that is experiencing a great deal of anxiety and fear. As the coronavirus spreads, there's a prospect of losing loved ones, of economic damage. Many people around us are experiencing great anxiety and fear, and perhaps some of the people in this room. It's at times like this that we need to remember it's especially important that we hold on to Christ. As the storms of life buffet us, it's essential we don't allow fear to take over our hearts and minds. But we hold on to Christ and the hope that comes with him even more. It's like if you're in the midst of a storm, if if you've got a boat and you're out in the seas and suddenly a storm comes up, the very last thing you'd want to do is lose the grip on the wheel, lose the grip on the boat that's holding you there or the anchor that's holding that boat in its place. So at times of crisis, it's really important that we hear this reminder not to drift away from Christ. You'll have heard those immortal lines from the Rudyard Kipling poem. If you can keep your head whilst all around you are losing theirs, 
There's something remarkable about being calm in a crisis. I think if we allow this truth to get inside us, if we absorb the incredible picture of Christ's majesty, of his sovereign control, then we will have the endurance to, and the courage to confront the hardest situations in our lives. And the third reason I think it's important is if you're not a Christian here, actually I want to show you a, a radically different vision of Christ than the one you might have. He's no mere wandering Jewish teacher or even just an influential um, figure of history. As we unpack this description of Christ, you'll realise that he cannot be reduced to a mere moral teacher. So I want to unpack the warning for us in these verses and hear the warning against drifting away from Christ. But I also want to show you the beauty and majesty of Christ. That He's so much better than any way we might turn to. And thirdly, we want to look, what does it mean to hold on to Christ? So first of all, then, this warning, don't drift away. In verse 1 of chapter 2, we hear the writer urging us, he says, we must pay attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. I think this can be understood on a number of different levels. First of all, just simply the idea of you might walk away from Christ. As we go on in the book again and again, you'll hear these warnings, don't shrink back, don't fall away. The clear implication is that these Hebrew Christians, or at least some of them, are considering walking away from Christ, going back to their old ways before they chose to follow Christ. They're considering giving up on their faith. This is a very real issue. I've seen this in a number of friends and folk who've been part of grace. Some of you may indeed personally relate to this. I think of Christians who just say, the cost of denying myself, the cost of resisting the desires and the feelings and the urges that I feel inside myself is too great. And they feel like just giving up. Although I've seen people where they build a a kind of list of resentments against God. They feel let down by God. They feel unanswered prayers. And that list builds and kind of those frustrations turn to bitterness. And they start to nurse that wound. They become angry with God. And they feel like they can't worship him. And instead, they walk away. This is a very real New Testament phenomenon. In 1 Timothy, in 1 Timothy Paul describes uh, a couple of guys, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who've rejected the faith, rejected what they've previously believed, and made a shipwreck of their faith. But really, what's going on beneath this? Well, really, I think what it is, is a warning not to be seduced by the world. It's not just that they're giving up on Christ. It's they're being seduced by looking at their old lives and saying, wouldn't we be better off? Weren't we better off beforehand? Wasn't our life better off before Christ? You see this in the whole thrust of the book of Hebrews is all the time the writer is trying to show them that what they have now is so much greater than what they had before. He says Christ is the ultimate high priest. He's established a new and better covenant. He's brought them to the true promised land. That He's established the people of God as the true temple of God. He's saying all these other things, they were just pointing to Christ. But what he's speaking to is that the people of God are saying we were better off beforehand. Our old lives were better. He's writing to that age-old problem of dissatisfaction, of looking back. We see this in the Passover story. God rescues the people of Israel from Egypt, uh, where they've been slaves. But a little while into their journey through the desert uh, to the promised land, he says, they say this. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around with pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you have brought us into this wilderness to starve us to death. 
Can you hear something of the ingratitude, the foolishness of what they're saying? They're willing to, to subject themselves to slavery for the sake of a warm uh, meal, just to be able to eat good food. Some of you may be looking back with exactly the same lens. Perhaps you're not considering walking away from Christ, but you find yourself looking back, wishing you could have the things that you've given up, the relationships you've said no to, the wealth that you've given away, or even simply the freedom to be able to do what you want whenever you want. And really the great error there is that you've forgotten that you, like the Israelites, have been liberated from slavery. Saying, don't look back and wish, wish you were there. Don't you realize your old life without Christ is like slavery? The promise of freedom in our culture is actually becoming a slave to your desires. They'll end up, um, you'll end up being controlled by those desires as you pursue pleasure in all the wrong places. And realize that rather than providing lasting satisfaction, you'll see that hedonism never satisfies. It leaves you always wanting more. Witness the lives uh, destroyed by addiction. Uh, The alcoholic who destroys his liver in the process of just pursuing more and more pleasure through alcohol. Or the wealthy person who who can't give up their job and is working and working and working because they don't feel like they have enough. It's easy to be tempted to go back to the things that brought you momentary relief, particularly when you're feeling anxious. But the message here is don't do it. Don't you realise that you won't feel better, that you're going back you're to a yoke of slavery. But this isn't just describing the abrupt act of walking away from Christ. It also describes something of the gradual, almost imperceptible drift away from Christ. The language of drifting speaks of a boat drifting off course that was headed in the right direction but slowly moved away from the right uh, direction. Or, th- or think about an object being passively pulled downstream. And I think really the great challenge these Hebrew Christians are facing is the same one we face. That there's a natural cultural drift. There are forces with the people around us. We are are herd-like creatures. We are affected by the context we find ourselves in. So it's natural that you will face something of a drift away from Christ. Because simply we are affected by the people around us. Unless you're actively resisting the pull of culture, unless you're actively aware that you need to walk against the, th- the tide, so to speak, you will be shaped by the people around us. Witness the way last week, maybe before any advice came out, uh, everyone stocked up on toilet roll and dry goods. It was just simply enough that everybody else was doing it, and so I had to do it. <laughs> Think about the, um, the subtler ways. Think about the way our social mores, our, our moral our, our vision of what's right and wrong is shaped by our culture. Think about how did a whole si- a nation take up the evil of Nazism or something like that? Well, it's simply because people justified it on the basis that everybody else was doing it, so it, it kind of had to be right. The great danger is that you as a Christian are being pulled away from Christ by our culture in so many imperceptible ways, and the great risk is that you don't even realise it. It requires a posture of active resistance, a willingness to walk courageously against the tide and reject the idols around you, embracing the idea that you will look different when everyone else around you is panicking about coronavirus. It says we've resolved to look different because we worship a God who is sovereign and, who, and because we don't believe that death is the end. When other students around you are anxious about their exams... 
You say, I w- that won't define me. That won't, I won't buy into that anxiety because I know that these results don't define me. You don't allow yourself to be pulled away from Christ and become obsessed about your performance because you know, even, even whilst everyone else around you is losing their heads. But really, I think this is more than that. It's, it's challenging us to have a different posture as Christians. It's challenging a posture of passivity. In verse 3, the writer says the problem is they ne- might neglect such a great salvation. Think about what it means to neglect something, to passively allow something to become destroyed, to neglect a garden, to allow weeds to grow up and to destroy something that was beautiful, to neglect a relationship and slowly drift apart. You've probably had this before where you maybe just stop speaking to someone, stop spending time with them, stop prioritizing them, maybe stop responding to them. It's hard to see at first, but the relationship that you had evaporates before your eyes. And really what this is saying is for some of you, you are too passive in your relationship with Christ. Not enough just to come to church every now and again and expect to cultivate a relationship with him. The biblical picture of relationship with Christ is much more than that. It says Christ must be sought. Christ must be pursued. In Psalm 42, it says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Hear the desperation, that thirst, the desire implicit in that prayer. The reality is some of you have allowed your hearts to become dull and apathetic. It may, not, it may not be obvious to those around you, but you've lost your love and hunger for Christ. And the great lie is that we are somehow the passive victims of our emotions. Later on in Hebrews, it talks about the writer exhorting them to stir up one another, stir one another up to love and good works. In the same way, if you see your love for the Lord waning, that you've been neglecting your walk with Christ, your desire for him is weak, you can immerse yourself in God's truth. You can speak God's truth to yourself. And of course, pray that God would give you a sense of your deep need for him. What it's saying is your heart, your desires matter, brothers and sisters. And as we go through something of a crisis as we're going through right now, it's really important that you look after your heart, that you speak God's truth to your heart. If you have to self-isolate, I would use that time productively to feed your soul and draw near to God again. But the final thing to say on this warning is that there there are consequences here. The writer is clear, saying, don't you realise there are consequences if you drift away from Christ? He says there's a just retribution for disobeying the message that came through angels. He's talking about saying, if there was a consequence for disobeying the Old Testament law that came through angels, how much more will there be judgment for those who ignore this invitation to salvation? To walk away from Christ is to invite judgment on yourself. He's saying, please don't see this as something to be trifled with. Realise there are lasting consequences for rejecting Christ. Later on in Hebrews, he describes it as a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's right to be sober about the prospect of judgment. But even to pull back from Christ, to keep him on the periphery of your life, is to lose something of the gifts that come with him, the joy, the peace, the comfort of knowing that he's sovereignly in control. Some of you are only experiencing half the Christian life right now, only, the, only half the comfort and joy and peace that you need to because Christ is not really dominating in your life. So you don't know the, what it means to experience the fullness of his joy and peace. That's the warning. But what is the antidote to this? 
How do we stop ourselves from passively drifting away from Christ? How will we endure with Christ in the face of a culture that doesn't share our convictions? And really what the writer of Hebrews is trying to draw your attention to is really the thing you most need is a bigger vision of Christ. Notice how chapter 2 starts with a therefore. He's saying, in view of everything I've told you in chapter 1, therefore hold on to Christ. Don't drift from him. You have no reason to drift away. He's saying, don't you realize what you have in Christ? The great problem facing Christians is a kind of gospel amnesia, a sense of grumbling and dissatisfaction because you've forgotten the riches that you have in Christ. The writer is keen to begin begin this letter with a declaration of Christ's majesty because he's saying Christ is superior. In verse 4, he talks about how Christ has a name which which is as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He's saying Christ has the ultimate superior name. It's better than anything else you might be tempted to worship. And Christians need to share this conviction. It's only when you have the conviction that Christ is better that you'll be able to say no to every potential idol, everything you might run to, to to calm your fears and anxieties. It's It's that conviction that will enable you to stay faithful as a minority in this culture. We need to be able to say with Peter, "Where, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. To whom shall we go? The writer lists a plethora of reasons why Christ is better. Let me look at a few. First of all, he says, you've seen God. We live in a post-truth world where doubt and uncertainty is, the, is the, the soup that we swim in. There's a culture of underlying subconscious doubt, saying, what can I know is true? Who can I trust? Is there such a thing as truth? And I think even in a time like crisis, a crisis like this, we're experiencing that, that truth is even more uh, re- real. I saw a Facebook post yesterday where someone said something like they were missing their father, their father had passed away, because they said, I just need someone to tell me that everything will be okay. We're looking for someone to trust. But as the concept of truth has unraveled, we're assailed by a kind of concept, a constant feeling of unrest and anxiety. Nothing to ground my life on. Nothing I can be certain, certain of. There's no sense of overarching reality that I can trust. And yet into this culture of doubt and anxiety and uncertainty, the Christian can speak with a great confidence. He's saying, God has spoken. We have seen the living God. In verse 1, it says, long, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He's saying Jesus Christ is the ultimate revelation of God. He's saying there needs to be no doubting. In verse 3, he goes on to describe him as the exact imprint of his nature. We can say we've seen God because we've seen Christ. In John's gospel, Christ tells his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Of course, it's an end to our humanity's chronic uncertainty about God. There's no need to philosophize, no need to speculate endlessly or, or seek to have profound mystical experiences where God reveals himself to us. It says, unilaterally, humanity has seen God. And that truth has been recorded and passed down to us. It's an end to your doubting. It's like in, the t- in a moment of crisis, you have a choice whether you're going to sit in those doubts whether you're going to choose to put your trust in Christ. We know truth exists because it has come to us as a person. And Christians should be walking in that peace-filled confidence. 
Because we can say with the writer of Hebrews, the truth was declared to us by the Lord. It's been attested to us by those who heard and confirmed by his miraculous ministry. We're not like everybody else, speculating and doubting whether life has an underlying reality. We can walk in a confident certainty that we've seen the living God. Why would you return to a time when you were troubled with so much uncertainty and anxiety? Second of all, you found an answer to the guilt within. We found an answer to the great human problem of guilt and shame. Behind every person is a litany of regrets and failures. People are weighed down by a burden of guilt and shame. People who we love, who we've hurt. Broken relationships. How we've neglected our responsibilities. How we should have helped someone, should have loved someone, but we didn't because we were more interested in ourselves and our own welfare. The feeling of guilt for things that you, even for things that you don't think are wrong. I speak to non-Christians who would say, yeah, I feel guilty about things that I wouldn't even say are wrong, like a one-night stand or whatever. This reality of guilt may be not used in that language of guilt before a holy God, but people talk about shame, a sense of unworthiness. And I think people try all sorts of ways to deal with this, whether it's an escapism, or trying to distract myself from the inner guilt that I'm feeling, a self-justification, or trying to blame others, or trying to sense of, no, well, they did that, so therefore I'm not responsible for that. I didn't do anything wrong. Or even just we, we tell ourselves to ignore the other voices, ignore the haters. But of course, that doesn't actually deal with the problem when you have the internal, deep, profound sense of your own guilt. None of these actually deal with the problem. But again, Christ has the unique answer. In verse 3, it describes how Christ has made the purification for sins. Note, note the past tense of that sentence. It says, if you put your trust in Christ, Christ's death alone has purified you and cleansed you has washed you clean. The Christian has no need to walk under a burden of guilt and shame. In fact, they should be walking with a sense of joy. Romans 4 says, For what joy for those who record that the Lord has cleared or cleansed of sin. Why would you return to a time when you laboured under guilt and shame? Why would you drift away from the one who gave his life to wash you clean and adopt you as his pure and holy bride? Next, you have a future hope. It's easy to see uh, Christians as a minority on the decline, as a minority on the decline, on the, a people on the way out, uh, described as belonging to a bygone era. You know, in our, uh, as society has embraced a new progressive morality, Christians are seen as a, rel- a relic to a, to a bygone age. But the writer is at pains to see that this, to really say to this fledgling minority in the urban context... Hang on, don't you see how the story ends? The picture he presents in chapter 1 is really a picture of Christ, of supreme majesty. Describes him in verse 2 as the heir of all things. Verse 3, after making purification for, for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's saying Christ is the true conquering king, reigning at the right hand of the Father. But even a day is coming when his visible reign will be revealed to the whole world. Verse 13 of chapter 1, it describes the Father speaking to the Son, saying, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Saying, sit at my right hand now, but a day is coming when every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You may be a minority in this context. You may be worshipping a king that many do not recognise. 
But a day is coming when he will be vindicated and you will be vindicated with him. Rather than being on the wrong side of history or on a minority on the way out, it says you're on the right side of history because you worship the Lord of history. The one who the psalmist describes in in verse 8, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Saying you can wait patiently and confidently. You can suffer abuse. You can accept your outsider status because you worship the great conquering king of history. Of course, your knowledge of how the story ends should radically reshape how we respond to this epidemic. Not saying we should become reckless. We should do everything we can to prevent the spread of the virus as good citizens. But our response need not be driven out of fear. We are not people who are shaped by fear. Why? Because we do not fear death or even suffering. Because we know we will live forever with the God whose reign will continue forever and ever. This is why I think Christians are marked by such a different response to the societies around them in times of crisis. They have a response driven out of love and of confidence in the sovereign God. They need not fear. It's why they're willing to care for those in need. Listen to this, what uh, Bishop Dionysus describes the, the standard response to a plague in a city. He says, at the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the, final, of the fatal disease. But contrast this with how he describes the response of the Christians. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbours and cheerfully accepting their pains." I'm not saying that we should go from house to house becoming kind of super spreaders. But I'm saying (laughs) the Christian is able to care for others, is able to take a response of love rather than fear, born out of a confidence in the sovereignty of Christ and his eternal reign. I love in this passage where he describes how they will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you'll roll them up, like a garment they will be changed saying the earth will be rolled up at the end of time. They're speaking of Christ's supremacy over all things. You found the great conquering hero of history. How can you turn away from him? He's rescued us by destroying the power of sin and death on the cross so that one day we will be troubled by neither. We live in a world that is desperate for heroes, desperately looking one to trust. And yet we found our true hero, the majesty of the universe, the heir of all things, the one whom one day all the nations will bow to. How could you walk away from him? How could you allow yourself to drift from him? So we must hold on to Christ. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. What does this mean? Well, really, I think the primary application for us as, as, as followers of Christ is to ask ourselves the question, is Christ the supreme voice of your life? You have a decision to make over the next few months as we experience uh, coronavirus in the West. Will you allow Christ's voice to be the supreme voice in your life? 
at Upper Room, uh, someone shared a picture which resonated with many of us of Psalm 1. A picture of a large tree rooted by streams of water. I mean, let me read it to you quickly. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the, seat of, in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. Picture with me a, a great sturdy tree with its roots going deep down into the water that is fruitful in all seasons. It's a picture of indestructibility, of immovability, of a sturdiness, of a robustness. I think as we heard that uh, picture, and, it was, and someone else prayed without knowing about it, also felt the Lord put that picture on their heart a few days later. I think that's a calling for us as a church through this crisis, that we become like those Psalm 1 trees, planted by living water, sturdy, robust, immovable. Why? Because we've allowed Christ's voice to be the dominating voice in our lives. That we don't allow ourselves to be captured by the anxiety and fear that is so apparent in our culture, that is dominating. The question for you, brothers and sisters, is which voice will you allow to speak loudest in your life? I know if I spend a few minutes just scrolling through one of those uh, live updates pages, anybody will start to feel anxious. As a new breaking news, another country closes borders or whatever. The, the challenge, the great challenge for you, brothers and sisters, is that you learn to filter some voices and learn to turn up the volume on the voice of Christ over the next coming weeks. That you will constantly be returning to the Word of God. That you will allow the Word of God to shape your mind. That you will live in a reality that puts Christ on the throne as He is right now, sovereignly reigning over the universe that recognises that as the ultimate reality and is not shaped by the circumstances that you're in. Of course, it doesn't mean we're unrealistic about the challenges we're facing as a, as, a, as a nation and as a world, but we are ultimately shaped by the knowledge that Christ is sovereign. So you must immerse yourself in his truth. You must be reminding yourself of his truth. The Christ we see here is no influential teacher with good ideas. He is the majesty of the universe. And it is precisely at this time that that truth speaks loudest to our hearts. Christ is the majesty of our lives. He's the heir of all things. He cannot be treated simply as a voice on the periphery of your life. He doesn't give you that option. He says, either I am the heir of all things, I am the majesty of the universe, or I am nothing. Your life, the way you conduct yourself, the, what you put into your mind and your heart, what you read, what you listen to, will define whether or not you believe that reality. I've shared this with before, but it's a good quote. Abraham Kuyper, There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Christ wants to take dominion over every part of your inner life every part of your heart and your mind, every part of your desires, your thoughts, as you experience anxiety, as you experience fears, you can bring those to Christ, bring them under the dominion of Christ. It's not that we deny the reality. I think the best way of looking at our situation or our response is found in the book of Daniel. Uh, these, these brothers are about to be put in the furnace uh, by Nebuchadnezzar. 
and um, or Belshazzar, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar, and um, and this is what they say. So they're about to be killed. They're about to be burnt in the fire. And this is what they say. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we, ha- we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. So they have every confidence and trust in their God to save them from what fe- feels like almost um, definite death. But then they say this, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. He's saying, even if God doesn't save us, we trust him because he is good, because he is the king over all things. I think that is the model for our response. But finally, I want to close with this idea. The writer of Hebrews is calling you to hold on to Christ. He describes him as the sure and steadfast anchor of our souls. He is the one we run to. He is the one we ground ourselves in. We ground ourselves in the reality that he is sovereign, reigning now with the Father. But, but paradoxically, we must also hear that great truth that Christ is holding on to us. I also felt to share with you that same verse that Andrew and Luke both shared with us from Romans 8. Can anything separate us from the love of Christ, from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that, neither, that nothing can separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here, here brothers and sisters, the call to hold on to Christ. Don't make the mistake from drifting away from him from ignoring the true hope that you find in him. But know all the while that Christ is holding on to you, that you will stand, that you will remain with him because of Christ's power at work in your life. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for this precious word. Can anything separate us from from Christ's love? Lord, we thank you that that you have come into our lives, that we have no need to uh, doubt or fear or be anxious because you're the, the image of the invisible God. You've revealed God to us. You're sovereignly reigning on the throne. A day is coming when your, your reign will be revealed to the world, when everyone will see that you are Lord Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, help us to hold on to you. Help us to run to you. Help us to hear your voice and and no other voices. Help us to be shaped by your word. Lord, we we run to you. We recognise you as the Lord of our lives, as the ground by which we build our house on, as the great anchor of our souls. We praise you and worship you. 
We thank you for that truth. Help us to be beacons to the world around us. Help us to show a different response to anxiety. Help us to be a people who are shaped by your truth and your reality above all things. And would others look on and say, that is incredible. How do you have such, such peace, such confidence? Because we know the living God. We know the truth of who he is. And we trust you and worship you, Lord. Amen.